Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4, and we'll read verse 1 for our text. It is the latter part of the verse specifically upon my spirit, but the whole verse reads, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. And it is the specific part as to how ye ought to walk and to please God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. How important important the walk of a Christian is. Many that have no idea of the doctrines of grace or have maybe never even gone into a house of prayer. They don't know anything of the word but they know what they see. And they see of those that even may not have made a profession in word before the church, but in coming in and out of the house of God and in going amongst the people of God, the word looks upon those and they judge them and they judge the doctrine that they hold or the truth that they hold by how it affects them in their lives, what they do and what they say. The Lord in his day warned uh, his people of the scribes and the Pharisees. Solemn thing, that the Lord should warn against the religious leaders of his day. He said, do what they say you to do, but do not after their works, for they say and they do not. My solemn thing that there could be a case where the teaching is right but the walk is wrong. And so the Apostle, in writing to the Thessalonians here, he uses very strong language, as it were. He beseeches them, he pleads with them, and he exhorts them. He writes to them as brethren writes to them as the Lord's people. You mustn't think that just because grace is received, just because a person is saved, that automatically they will walk and they will do the right thing in the sight of God. The blessing of grace is to give a hearing ear and a willingness to be taught And really, it is a blessed thing if we are aware that in the Word of God there are the directions how we should walk and how we are to please God. Now, may we be very clear in this, that we are not saved by our works. This is not setting before us a way that we can please God so God will look upon us and forgive us our sins 
and that that will be our hope for heaven based upon our obedience and our walk. The title to heaven is not by our righteousness, which is filthy rags, but through Christ's work alone. It stands upon the Lord Jesus Christ dying for our sins on Calvary's tree and putting them away by the sacrifice of himself. That is our basis, our hope. When I see the blood, the promises, I'll pass over you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It is that Christ has died for us that is the title to heaven. The forgiveness of sins is through what Christ has done. Our fitness for heaven is when through the grace of God he brings us to believe by being called by his grace. And then that uh, faith that he gives is the means of conveying the blessings that have been purchased by Christ. And one of those blessings is the imputed righteousness of Christ, imputed or put upon our account. And that again is what we appear in the presence of God with. Not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. So what we have here, really it belongs to time. It belongs while we're in the day of grace. It belongs while we're in this world. While we are sinners. While we cannot expect that our work will be perfect because it is stained with sin. This is not pointing beyond the grave, is not pointing uh, to a people that are perfect but sinners and directing them how they are to walk and please God. And you think, how could it be that a poor sinner shall please God? Well, it is when firstly, The things that they are doing and walking, they're not looking to obtain salvation by that. They're looking solely to Christ. That pleases God. And it pleases the Lord where he sees those fruits that accompany that saving grace and that willingness of a people to walk in obedience to him. Really the secret to abounding more and more is in our walk and our conduct that we do not grieve the Lord we do not grieve his spirit but we as obedient children not fashioning ourselves according to our lusts in our ignorance but as he which hath called us is holy so we also are to be holy in all things. So the Apostle here is writing to the Thessalonians here and he's speaking to them so that they would know how that they ought to walk and please God. It really would be useless to be beseeching a people and exhorting them if there was no clear points of exhortation 
and clear direction what was actually wanted and what was uh, to be walked in. And so we would expect that following this, that the Apostle says, although it would take in all his letters to the Thessalonians, all parts of them, but I want to this evening just confine our thoughts to this chapter alone in which we have uh, five things that are set before us to watch as to our walk and our conduct before God. How ye ought to walk and to please God. The first thing that the Apostle sets before them is a path of holiness. He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. And he begins with this right at the very start. And if we look at this world, you don't have to look far, newspapers or any news or anything that you see, and you see uncleanness and you see the spirit of the world in that which is unholy. The very first distinctive thing that God sets before his people is that quality, if you like, that is so unique and belongs to our Lord as being holy. Peter especially deals with it in his epistles, be ye holy for I am holy. And in all of our thoughts and our affections and in our walk, we are to be holy. The opposite to being unclean and worldly and not just in how we walk but how we speak and, and how we think. And it is even guarded in the word of God. It is said that it is even a shame for uh, the people of God to speak of those things that the world does in secret. We are to avoid all innuendo, all speaking that stirs up the mind and the wrong affections. James, he speaks of the power of the tongue. The children of Israel, when they went into the promised land, one of the things that they had to destroy of the nations that they went amongst was the pictures. And the power of something that is a picture to look upon is a very powerful influence. And those nations, they didn't fear God. They were unholy. And their pictures was of their gods and of many unclean and wrong things. And so the first thing for those that fear God, those that desire to walk in his ways, are to pay specific regard to a holy and clean and upright walk. And remembering that this is one of the great hallmarks of the fall is unholiness and the great hallmarks and the one thing that needs to be guarded right at the very beginning with a child of God 
is that holiness. It's something that the world will certainly notice. And it is something in a child of God that he'll have the most battle with and the most conflict with. The corruptions of his own heart, the unholiness of his own heart. And so that is the uh, first thing that we have said before us. The exhortations through the word are to mortify the deeds of the body and to walk holy as the Lord is holy himself. The second thing that is set before us in this portion is a path of brotherly love. In verse verse 9, 9 and 10, we have, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I should write unto you, for yourselves are taught of God to love one another, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Very much he exhorts in this not to rest content and think, well, I'm walking all right in this respect, but to exhort more and more in this way. In John's epistles we read, By this shall all men know, that ye are my disciples indeed, in that ye love one another. The very mark of being a child of God, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And the solemn reminder that whoso hateth his brother is a murderer and eternal life uh, does not abide in him. And we are pointed to perceiving the love of God in that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And our Lord said that greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And John, he takes it up and says that we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And really there's no sadder witness to the world when the world looks upon the church of God and it finds them fighting amongst themselves, finds that there's not love in what they say and what they do and how they act one towards another. And so the Apostle sets this forth in the second place and we especially notice that he puts it second after holiness so that brotherly love is a pure love. We wouldn't think of uh, the case of Jonathan where he lo- uh, and David that they loved each other and the love that surpassed the love of women. But it was a pure love. They loved for the Lord's sake. And that purity, holiness comes first. And then the love to the brethren, second, emphasising that love is a right, clean and pure love to the brethren. One day, those that are called, those that are walking together here below, will be together 
in heaven. They will be with the Lord, be together, walking together. And uh, may that be so that we have that evidence here below and strive for it. He exhorts here. He beseeches here. And we know that Satan, he is a divider of the brethren. He is a whisperer that separateth chief brethren. Uh, backbiting, gossiping, speaking against one another is always damaging, always grieving, grieving to the spirit. What the apostle was saying before the Thessalonians here is how you ought to walk and to please God. And when the Lord sees his people dwelling together in peace and love and union, that pleases the Lord. And may we uh, be blessed with that uh, help to walk in that way. All of these points really is the Apostle sets them before the Thessalonians and before us. May we seek that grace and help turning each point into a prayer that the Lord would help us to walk in that way. Then we have in the third place working for our living. In verse 11 we have that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The Thessalonians, they at first had thought that the Lord's coming was so eminent that they were selling their lands, they were really putting their whole lives on hold and shutting everything down, waiting for the Lord's coming. But then they ended up being busybodies, just with nothing to do, going from house to house, making a nuisance of themselves, and they weren't providing for their own. They were leaving their own families without the provision. And the apostle then had to counter that, that they had to work. They had to study to do their own business. And he sets before them in another place, if a man does not work, neither should he eat. And it comes then to our workplace. And we spend a lot of time in secular employment and we should take our faith there. Men should see and know our faith in that workplace. Many blessings that I have had in the workplace, in the presence of unbelievers, Many trials as well, but many blessings and many helps. And God certainly honours those that honour him and work diligently and usefully with their hands. Idleness is never uh, condoned by the Lord. And we're not to think that, well, godliness is just to spending lots of time in reading and prayer or study, but it is that right balance. And certainly we are to have those employments. I always remember the time that I 
had to preach years ago at the Black Boys. It was an evening uh, service. And I was working then. I was servicing 10 machines for a pharmaceutical company that I'd made and designed, designer made. It was the other side of, uh, is in Basildon. And I had to get back to that evening service but I had to get those machines done. I was working as fast as I could. I got another employee with me and I was also in the company car and I had to race back to uh, Cogs Heath area and drop off the car, drop off the other employee and get down to Black Boys and I knew I wasn't going to make it in time. I phoned through... Uh, to the deacon, I gave him the readings, I said, look, start the service, I hopefully I'll be there by the time the sermon comes. And I hardly had time to go home, I ended up, I think it was a blue shirt, coloured tie and all sorts, I ended up turning up there with. But I got in to that chapel after all those miles journey and as I opened the door, uh, the vestry, I heard just three words and realised they were the last part of the reading I'd given. So the prayer was next. So I put down my books, so I opened the, the door to the chapel, which was right at the front of the chapel, and Sid Hickman, who was the deacon there, and he, he looked at me and said, you're right to take the prayer. I went straight up into the pulpit, took the service from there. And in all the going along, I'd almost forgotten why well, I hadn't been thinking of what my text was and the text was that that uh, if a man do not work then neither should he eat and uh, I remember speaking on that occasion that there may be those there that had work that made it very hard to get off on time for an evening service as I had found it very hard. But rather than say, well, I'm not going to get the start of the service, I'm going to miss the whole service, just get what you can. And just come in at the tail end, if you like, or just hear the sermon. Because the Lord has given that it is right to work with our hands. It would be wrong to turn down employment, as it were, saying, well, that is going to impact upon an evening service or part of that evening service. And of course, regarding the Lord's Day, there are those employments that must be had, that are acts of mercy and in the hospitals or fire service or police. And uh, it is good when we are able to reduce the time away from the Lord's house, able to get to the Lord's house and... But we need to be so tender on that. The Lord has given that man must labour for his food. And there are many professions that, like the nursing profession, that do impact sometimes on meeting in the house of God. And it is a great blessing if we're able to glorify the Lord in what we do and those around about us can see see where our heart is and though we were working maybe labouring and I'm sure they, they knew well they did know that where I was working and I was so wanting to get to the house of God of course in that 
sense that I was the preacher. But I hope it's so with us all that when we're aiming to leave our workplace, especially on those times for the house of God, that those round about us, they know this is why we want to go. This is where we're, we're hoping to go. But so the, the way in pleasing God is not just all what we might think of in godly spiritual exercises, but in how we labour with our hands, how we actually act and apply ourselves in our business. Study to be quiet and to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And of course, in today's thing, many of the work is with our, with our brains as well. But the principle is the same. So that is the third aspect of the walk and conduct of a child of God. Not just a Sunday religion. Not just an evening religion. Uh, that which is carried right through in the workplace and before unbelievers. Which is then the fourth thing that he sets before us in verse 12. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. In the midst of unbelievers, that's what's meant by those that are without, those that are outside of the church, those are unbelievers, that we're walking honestly before them. Many years ago, when I first started the, the work, the engineering firm over in Australia, I was only 24 at the time, and when I first started, the accountant came to me and offered me it was $450 or so a year for the use of my car for the business. And I said to him, but I don't use the car for my business, so I'm not having the money, thank you very much. He said, yeah, but he said, we all do it. He said, it's just a tax thing. He said, you, you, you can just claim it. I said, no, I said, I'm not claiming it. You keep your money because I'm not using my car. And they put a lot of pressure on and I refused to have it. And it, it set me apart right at the very first when I started with that employment. But then years later, 12 years later or more, when we came over here, I resigned from my employment there to come over here. And three days later, that same employer, he said to me, you're only going to a small pastorate, you need a job there. He said, we'll set you up with an office there. We'll give you a contract. And they gave me £8,000. That's a lot of money, 25, 26 years ago, to set up an office here in Cranbrook and to work for them, their contract. And I thought, that's a lot of trust, to trust me with all that money. And then my mind went back to that time and I thought, yeah, you know from what I did then, that by the grace of God, I wouldn't misuse that. I would only use it in the right way. And it puts a lot of obligation 
as it were, one little bit of dead fly in the ointment, one mistake, one slip, how easy it can completely be marred. But the world notices and they remember and what you do before them, they do mark it. I've made mistakes many times. Many times I've had to go to those that I've walked in a wrong way before and had to tell them I did wrong. The way I spoke to you was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. And the, the quicker we can apologise or set things right or humble ourselves before those of whom we have said anything that is wrong or not according to the scriptures, the better. And they actually again will admire and look favourably upon a faith that would actually confess the faults. The word of God is clear to confess your faults one to another. So the apostle, when he set before them and us how to walk and to please God, he's covering a very real practical place of the people of God in this world. Then he comes to the last part, a very known, well-known passage from verse 13 to the end, often read in funerals and a beautiful word it begins with but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren and it gives you uh, the very clear direction as what shall happen at the last day again these Thessalonians they thought that those that had died they'd perished their loved ones had perished but no the apostle says they are not he says, I would have you not to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are, which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And then he, he tells what the truth is, that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. Their souls, they are alive. They're with, with God. They're with the Lord. Absent from the body, said the apostle, present with the Lord. And then he pictures what shall happen at that last day. And he speaks of it as them. But of course the apostle has died. And we know not who shall be if the Lord's people alive when the Lord comes. But he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, yes, there will be those of the Lord's people alive and remaining unto the coming of the Lord, when the world shall end, the Lord shall come with power and great glory in the clouds of heaven. Those alive shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. Those that have died and they've been buried, when the Lord comes and Lord descends from heaven, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those that remain on the earth shall see those graves open and the dead in Christ shall rise. They shall be given a new body, a celestial body. And then he says, we which are alive and remain 
shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's a beautiful passage, a passage which ends with wherefore comfort one another with these words. And the very words that we are to comfort one another with are given us in the word of God. It is a, it's a beautiful passage to be taken so literally, the very words there that we are to use to those that are in bereavement and of sorrow. But the special principle that I bring before you as how we ought to walk and to please God is that we walk in knowledge and not ignorance. The beginning in verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning. And we could say that concerning many, many things. What is pleasing to God is with his people, rather than being ignorant, they are instructed by the word of God. When the Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. The Bereans were very concerned when they heard Paul preach that what he was preaching was according to the Old Testament scriptures. They searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. And the people of God are not to be an ignorant people. We mentioned as the first point concerning holiness and we are told that we are not to fashion ourselves according to our ignorance, when we were in ignorance. It is when knowledge is come, when understanding is given, then we are to walk according to that knowledge. Ignorance is, is really no excuse. And it is not even in our land. If we were to go down the road and get caught speeding, and the officer said, did you know what speed you were doing? And you said, oh, I didn't know. Well, that ignorance is not an excuse. Or if you were to say, do you know what the speed limit is in this area? So I don't know what it is. But that wouldn't be a defence either. And we are to, even in natural things, be mindful of what, what is involved. If, if we were to think of planning permission, we might say with this chapel, oh, we're going to do this or that, we're going to change these things on the fabric of the building, and we go and do it, and then someone says, well, hang on a minute, do you know that that is a listed building and the regulations you should know about? And the fact that we are ignorant of it is no defence. So there are those things that sometimes we don't even know that we need to know about them. But many things in our lives we have to really search and Examine, is there something that in our job or what we're about to do, I need to know? And especially it is so in the things of God. Remember years ago when we had the uh, 
wall put up at the top of the car park here and the people digging the foundations, they went straight through and electricity cable broke it and loud bang, of course, all the power went off and they had to get electricity people out. But they didn't know where that cable was. But just being ignorant of that, that it was something that needed to have been looked into and examined before excavating or doing things like that. Uh, and so with the things of God, the Lord is pleasing to him when his people have that desire to know. Remember reading years ago of in Holland, the Reverend Kirsten, he was the founder of the Netherlands Reformed Congregations there, and his mother caught him up at two o'clock in the morning. She said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm searching the scriptures to find out how God saves his people. And he wanted to know this, and he wanted to know it from the word of God, how it was. And it is a blessed thing to walk not just not in ignorance, not just blundering our way along, but walking according to knowledge, understanding. I wonder sometimes how many of us in our churches actually know why we do things. Why do we wear a head covering? Why does the women wear a head covering? Why don't the men? Do we know that? Why is it that we worship on the first day of the week, why don't we still worship as the Jews did on the Saturday? Many things we might say, why? Why do we do this? Or how is it that God does save his people? The ordinances of the Lord's house. What are the qualifications to walk in them? What are the obligations? who are those that not only may but should walk in those ordinances and instead of just turning aside and not finding out and not knowing those things it is pleasing in the sight of the Lord when we walk in knowledge I would not have you to be ignorant brethren and this is concerning them that are asleep, but in many different ways. The Apostle writes in one time as to how that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And he sets before them how they are to walk, how they are to behave. And so in these things, the Apostle gives just in this chapter, and we could of course add many other parts of the word of God, but how we ought to walk and to please God. To maybe be aware, the scriptures do point us into which way to walk. It is something that the brethren are besought and exhorted to do. And it is something that is set before us as sinners. And we need to ask the Lord. We need to pray 
that he'd give us grace and wisdom and help. And we are to never expect perfection. And as we desire to walk in the Lord's ways, there'll be many times that we come pleading that word in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a better thing when we walk as before the Lord or as the Apostle says to the Hebrews that we are running the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus. The Apostle says, Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. He followed the Lord, the Lord as his example, as his pattern. And it's a blessed thing if we also are followers of him and followers of them who through faith and patience have already inherited the promises. They walked below. They also had the same trials and battles with their flesh. They also had their employments. They also had those of unbelievers round about them. May remember that all of God's children at some stage were unbelievers, were without. And when we think of the beautiful account of Ruth, the Moabites, one that was an idolater, and yet through the example in widowhood, bereavement and sorrow of her mother-in-law, she claved to her in love, was brought to the land of Israel, ought to be united to Boaz. Blessed amongst the people of God, though she said, though I be not like one of thine handmaidens. In her words, she really learned to walk, walking with one of the afflicted and tried saints of God. And that is a, a blessing, whereas iron sharpeneth iron, so the countenance of a man his friend. But what blessed, more blessed way when the one that we walk with is actually the Lord. Take, our Lord says, my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. And in walking with the Lord you learn his spirit and his way and do that which is pleasing in his sight. It's a practical word this evening the importance is that we're not looking at these works for salvation we're doing it because we love the Lord and desire to walk in that way that pleases him and that pleases him when our trust is solely in his blood his righteousness and we walk then as the fruits of what he has wrought in our heart seeking to know and do his will. May the Lord bless this word to us so that we know how we ought to walk and to please God. Amen.